When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, this is Raoul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Yurian, fantastic to see you, my friend. Good to see you too, Raoul. So look, this is um, interesting because we're going to skew this discussion more about crypto than macro, but you and I are both macro and crypto people. So, you know, it's always why I love speaking to you. So I think firstly, just um, I think a lot of people know who you are, but just give a little background who you are, and then we'll start digging into what your macro framework is right now. Uh, Of course, I do macro here at Fidelity. I've been here for 27 years. I've been in the industry for close to four decades. Sounds sounds longer than it feels. Like you, I'm I'm from the islands. Um, I I grew up, born and raised in Aruba of Dutch parents, found my way to the U.S. and I've been here my whole adult life. Kind of went down the rabbit hole on Bitcoin a couple of years ago, but most of my day job is just dealing with the macro. Where are we in the cycle? How do we connect all the dots on you know what the Fed is doing and geopolitics and the market cycle um, and all of that stuff? And in terms of you know my framework right now, it literally just all comes down to earnings here because markets gone down twenty five percent to the recent lows. That can all be perfectly explained by valuation and what valuations should have done when the liquidity tide goes from in to out, which, of course, it has done in a very rapid way. And you can explain that all almost to the decimal point in terms of what that means for the valuation in the stock market here. But a valuation reset and a full recession bear are two different things. And you know, you know this because you've been actually very precious and calling for this for the last few months. But, you know, a typical bear market's 33% over 19 months. A typical recession bear is about 35%. A typical non-recession bear, which is by definition only a valuation reset, is 22%. So we've done 25, we've done it over six months. And if earnings are not the next shoe to drop, then we're good to go. You know, there, there may not be a catalyst for a monster rally because then for that, to happen, you would need PEs to go up. If earnings end up being the dog that does not bite, then I think the market is on pretty solid footing here. But if we're about to have an earnings contraction, which of course would be part of a recession scenario, then we're not done yet. So that's kind of the main main thesis here. Have you broken down the sectors somewhat, not at super granular level, but you know, once you see kind of energy and some of the others, their earnings obviously are holding up because this is a good environment for them. And technology seems to have maybe priced in a recession more so. I mean, I look at a very simple perspective is the year on year rate of change of, let's say, the NASDAQ and the S&P. You can see in the NASDAQ, it's pretty much priced an ISM at 42. So it's kind of fully there already or very close. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's interesting. Energy 
it's such a small sector. It's not as small as it used to be, but it's a lot smaller than it was in the 80s, for instance. When you look at the consensus earnings estimates for the market, they're like eerily quiet. They're at 4% growth for the second quarter, which we're, of course, we're just starting to report now. But you strip out that little tiny energy sector and you're down to minus 4%. So earnings are already wow. starting to contract. But the big tech uh, or the big growers, the long duration stocks were obviously caught in the crosshairs of this rate reset. I mean, you know, 10 years like a 1% a year ago or something like that, and it's 3% today. Real rates went from minus two to plus one in pretty rapid uh, order. The long duration stocks, which by definition means discounting a long stream of earnings, those are very sensitive to changes in the discount rate or the cost of capital. And so they fell hard as you would expect them to when interest rates rise rapidly. But now interest rates, I think, have peaked for the cycle. The terminal rate, has gone from 4% to about 3.5%. And the relative performance of the large growers to the S&P or to small value, if you want to make an extreme pair trade out of it, is very highly correlated to changes in interest rates. And so the leaders during this downturn have, of course, been the defensive names, utilities, consumer staples. But you know the, the staples are starting to get hit by the strong dollar because they're very sensitive to currency moves. Utilities have gotten kind of expensive. So I think the leadership actually is returning to the big growers here. And as you said, they've already discounted a lot of bad news. Yeah, because I've actually created a basket of further out the NASDAQ, so the real kind of growth end of the market, did a whole basket of stuff. And I mean, that's pricing the ISM at 38. So I mean, that's a full and deep, you know, negative 2%, 2.5% recession. So I totally agree. Before I move on to bonds, which I want to get to, because they are the most mispriced versus where we are in the business cycle right now. When you go around Fidelity and to speak to the analysts and say, why haven't you taken down your forecasts? What do they say? Because it's always, I always find it amusing because the macro guys are always looking at the forecast and the bottoms up guys are doing different stuff. And sometimes we see different pictures and one time one side is right, the other side, the other side is right. What do they say when you talk to them? Our analysts have been correctly positioned in terms of lowered expectations. And I don't want to say that we're, that I speak for my colleagues in saying this, but that there is a sense that sometimes the companies who, of course, guide the analysts, the sell side analysts, were of course, the buy side, but the companies who guide the analysts who then lower their numbers, that hasn't really happened yet, right? The, the numbers are kind of still up there, still expecting 10% earnings growth for this year. Now, part of that is energy, as we mentioned earlier, but there's a sense that sometimes the company themselves are the last to know that their earnings are not going to hold. And so maybe part of this is just a game where everyone is just pretending that the numbers are fine until they're not, and then they get guided lower. But when it started with those big misses of the big retailers, you know, last quarter, certainly the market has been put on notice that there's a change going on. And obviously, we have a a massive inflation problem, at least right now. The forward-looking numbers are coming way down, of course. But the the backward-looking CPI is up 9%. It becomes a question of how much companies can push those prices onto consumers at this point in the game. What is your hunch here? Do you think that We do take down earnings. Now, they're coming down already, as you said. It's kind of being hidden by the energy sector. Do we take down earnings further so we get to the 33 35% and we're kind of there for price? And again, I use the year-on-year rate of change. That will bring us down to, versus the ISM, will bring us down to 
the low 40s, maybe just below that. Is that the most likely outcome to you, i.e. we've got another leg lower? Or do you feel like, you know what, maybe we can... It seems difficult to avoid a recession, but I don't know. What what, what, do, what do you think? Um, it's tricky. It feels tricky here, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a because very... Because I, I share your longer-term view, but it's this little kind of three-month window that's difficult. Yeah, it's a very tricky question because you look at the headline economic data, obviously the ISM has rolled over, but... That does, you know, you need to get into the high 40s, as you know, on the PMI to be consistent with negative GDP growth. And of course, we do have negative GDP growth, but it's not really a consumer-led negative GDP growth, right? It's inventories, exports, it's stuff like that. And then you look at the payroll number, we're still printing a few hundred thousand a month. You know, and I look at, at the TSA data, you know, 2.4 million passengers a day. Consumers don't seem to have gotten the memo that a recession is imminent. But again, maybe they're the last to know, right? Because because they're not going to stop spending until the jobs start disappearing. And we already see you know, news that companies are not hiring as much, but they're not really laying off in droves either. So I do think it's premature to say that certainly that we're in a recession. I, I think clearly we're, well, I shouldn't say clearly, but my guess is that we're not in a recession other than the technical definition of how GDP it's is constructed. Culture. But you know, con- the consumer is 70% of the economy. So if the consumer is employed spending still has some savings left from the pandemic, it's hard for me to connect the dots to an imminent recession or certainly one that's already happening. But clearly the cycle is slowing. There's no question about that. But the cycle always goes through a phase where it's slowing. Clearly earnings growth is slowing. It was 50% growth rate six months ago. It's about 15% now probably on its way to five or maybe even less. When I look at the internal numbers, Uh, So when I look through the consensus estimates and I look at the breadth of the number of S&P 500 companies that are seeing their earnings estimate go up versus down, you know, we've gone from 90% a year ago to now 40%. But even that 40% is not necessarily a recession level. You, You just, you know, you can lower earnings estimates, but still be positive on a year-over-year basis, right, if that if that makes sense. So, so I'm not at all ready to ring the bell on a recession, but clearly we're in an advanced late cycle phase of the market and the econ- economic cycle, and clearly things are slowing. Consumer disposable income is being eroded by inflation. Companies are going to have a tougher time passing on their higher input costs. You know, it's interesting. I'm I run a a theme camp at Burning Man, not to completely change uh, topics here, but Burning Man's in about four or five weeks from now. And as the TCO, as the theme camp organizer, I'm in heavy planning mode. And the economy remains very resource constrained. You know, trying to find people to help, you know, move stuff in Reno, securing propane, like stuff like that. So there are still a lot of problems in the economy in terms of bottlenecks and, and resource constraints. Whenever the next recession comes, and eventually it will, of course, maybe some of that will get resolved. But we're not there. Like to me, it still feels like a pretty tight economy. So people are probably asking, wondering. Why the hell we're talking about all this macro and why it matters to crypto? And the point being is we both think we're in the zone where things are going to change, perceptions of inflation, perceptions of interest rates, and perceptions of future growth expectations and how you discount it may well change. So talk us through how this fits into crypto, and then we'll dig into some of the other things you've been doing in crypto, because I think you do some of the best analysis 
out there bar none. And I think it's super interesting. But just give us the why macro matters to crypto so people can frame that. Well, I think macro matters. I focus mostly on Bitcoin, a little bit of Ethereum, but those two are really the only ones I've done extensive work on. Ethereum to me, and I think you agree with me, is a technological revolution, but it, it kind of goes on one side of the risk, not of the risk spectrum, but like of the 60-40 spectrum, right? Like that's a kind of a, a growthy venture type of asset based on changes in technology. Uh, Bitcoin has that, of course, but it's also an aspiring store of value. And I say aspiring because it it hasn't quite proven itself yet, right? It's still coming of age. It's still trying to get up there alongside of gold as a store of value. And until it has proven itself, it's kind of a venture asset, right? And as we've seen over the past you know, six months, Bitcoin, as much as it tries to be the anti-fiat, still suffers from the whims of stuff that happens in the fiat world, including leverage and speculation. And of course, we're seeing, we're seeing that, that winter you know, unfold uh, before us. But the macro narrative, I think, is important in providing kind of the recognition point or the, the narrative for adoption, right? So we saw, of course, in 2020, I think Bitcoin bottomed at 3,000. Then we had the pandemic, we had the policy response, again, like from the Right from the 1940s playbook, that that high octane fiscal monetary policy, uh, and Bitcoin went off to the races. And I think part of the value proposition was, okay, we're going to print ourselves into oblivion. You know, M2 growth is just off the charts. The excess money, as we call it, the difference between money growth and GDP growth, I think went to like 35% or so, the highest probably since the, the 40s or the 70s. And that I think provides the narrative for the bystander, you know, not the not the Bitcoin insider, but the bystander to say, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and so the person who is not going to spend 500 hours understanding Bitcoin, but who sees it as a, a coming of age asset class, I think the narrative, the macro narrative becomes important, unless you're just buying it because the price goes up, which of course a lot of people do. But if you want something more than that, uh, it has to fit into kind of a worldview and this notion of an extended period of extremely loose policy, negative interest rates, rampant money supply growth. Those have all been good periods for gold in the past. And if we put the store of value hat on for Bitcoin, I think that was probably part of the narrative in 2020 going into 2021. And now that the Fed has reversed so quickly from that playbook, not that this was the Fed's playbook, but certainly I thought that we were going to have a multi-year period of extremely loose policy and that the U.S. would follow kind of in the footsteps of the 1940s Fed or the modern day Bank of Japan. And who knows, maybe we still will. It wouldn't surprise me if after this cycle, we go we right back We have yield curve there. control. Yeah, we have so. yield curve control. Uh, we, we cap bond yields just like the Fed did in the 40s. And we see what the Bank of Japan is doing, right? They're doubling and tripling down on yield curve control and their currency is suffering as a result. Because, Euron, just to go back to the point we raised yeah. earlier, let's say that rates were too tight, like monetary conditions have been very high and we can't take positive real rates. The learning from this is, oh my God, we barely raised rates and we crashed the economy, let's say. Therefore, the next time around, they will say we can't raise rates. Yeah. Because if not, we're going to put you back into recession again. So we have to have yield curve control at a sensible level. It yeah. feels like that's an obvious narrative to come, right? 
I agree. And I think what happens after this particular cycle that we're in, I mean, clearly the Fed has committed, it seems, to breaking inflation at all costs. Like, I mean, from the rhetoric that we hear, and maybe it's just rhetoric, right? Maybe it's just job owning, but I'll take them at their word. Uh, we already see what the yield curve is, is signaling. So it seems that the Fed is willing to risk a recession to slay the inflation dragon. And maybe once it does, it can reverse that policy. So again, I think what's more interesting is not so much what happens in this cycle, where we end up. I think we're starting to get clarity on that, but what happens in the next cycle. And if it's determined that interest rates are too high for an over-levered, highly financialized economy, and we go back to a period, a prolonged period of negative real rates, then that's going to play right into the hands of the gold bugs and as well as, as Bitcoin. And it's really interesting. You know, I look at gold a lot. And when I did my deep dive on Bitcoin, I looked at it from a traditional, a TradFi 60-40 person saying, like, how would a traditional investor look at this. And then, and I did that by looking at gold first and because gold has a thousand plus year history as money. And then it became an asset class in the 1970s. And then I kind of replaced gold with Bitcoin to say, okay, if this, then that. But when you look at gold and its valuation, you know, gold's valuation is driven by mostly by real rates, by money growth, inflation, but mostly by real rates. On the basis of real rates and the sharp reversal over the past six to 12 months, gold should be trading at 1200 right now. And it's trading at 1713, uh, which is down from its peak, but that's about $500 per ounce more than what the TIPS model, which is what we generally use in the business, would suggest. And that maybe maybe there's a tell there. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe it's just really... geopolitics, maybe it's Russia, but maybe there's a tell that investors are looking past this cycle and saying, maybe real rates don't go to ridiculously negative levels like they did in the 40s, but maybe they're just going to stay negative for a really long time. And then, you know, bonds become really uninteresting, even though at 3%, they have value here, at least from a 60-40 from a kind of construction point of view. But, you know, if you're looking at negative real returns, as far as the eye can see, investors are going to start changing their asset mix and gold would be a beneficiary of that. And I presumably Bitcoin will be as well. Once we can kind of get past these huge boom bust cycles, which maybe we never will, but uh, you know th that might be a feature rather than a bug. So here's my hypothesis here. Both you and I spend a lot of work looking at network effects and the adoption curve, right? It's clearly a logarithmic trend that is exponential in linear terms over time as adoption drives the value of the network. And you've done huge amounts of work on that. I've done huge amounts of work on it. We both tend to agree that this is one of the larger network adoptions that we've seen. So the trend is up and to the right, even though it's volatile. So the only macro thing I can see that really affects it seems to be year-on-year -year rate of change of M2, as you were talking about. And we've got to this negative year-on-year -year rate of change of M2, which is generally the bottom of the Bitcoin market and the crypto markets overall. Okay, fine. So that looks right. So what we're both trying to say, which is why the macro is so important here, is we're both saying, listen, it's unlikely that M2 is going to remain so negative. We're already seeing China increasing its M2. So even if we don't return to QE and massive rate cuts, let's assume we don't. I actually think we will get some of that maybe later, but irrelevant. 
But because the chart is up and to the right, you're holding a, a ball underwater, a beach ball underwater. And the moment M2 stops contracting, the ball rises. You know, I'm very, very focused on crypto again right here. I'm very focused on bonds, very focused on crypto. And it feels that the crypto markets want to start pricing this. Yeah. How are you thinking through that? I agree with that. I think Bitcoin and the rest of crypto just has to survive this winter of deleveraging. You know, it's it's the winter of our deleveraging. And because that's an idiosyncratic thing where, you know, we all know the stories of who blew up and, and this and that. And clearly that whole kind of balloon is is shrinking, which at the end of the day, of course, will be, I think, a, a very big opportunity because then you can get in based on the fundamentals which, as you mentioned, you know, the network adoption curve is up and to the right. We don't know the slope, but it's still up and to the right. But it's nice to be able to get in when you don't have to worry about if some person is going to get liquidated and drive another 10,000 points you know, down. And so it seems to me we're getting towards the end of that cycle. You're seeing headlines of, of hedge funds and players blowing up. And usually when you're at the beginning of a downturn, you have a sense that people are blowing up, but you don't know who they are. And when they start making the headlines, I think it's when you're later in the cycle. So I, I agree that it will be nice to start looking at the fundamentals. I mean, we're all looking at the fundamentals, but to start having price respond to fundamentals without worrying about you know who's over their skis and has to has to puke out. And then it comes down to to me, the most important thing is the, is the slope of the demand curve, right? So we know about supply, stock to flow. I think the stock to flow model was very useful in the early days in explaining this parabolic curve. I think it's going to be less and less useful going forward just because with every halving, more and more coins will have been mined. You'll, you'll be closer to the supply limit, and it's just going to have less and less of an impact. So that, stair, that stairway to heaven, that stair step, you know, stock to flow curve, I, I think that's not a realistic path going forward. And then we have the demand curves. And as you've done it as well, you know, there's hundreds of best curves historically that we can draw from with various different slopes. And I think this is a good place to kind of remind ourselves and the audience that we're dealing with exponential you know, data here, right? This yeah, well, is to make not... sure that Nico puts that big chart up of yeah. all of the historical ones that you've got, which yeah. is a magnificent piece of work. Thank you, thank you. But yeah, we're not dealing with with a linear formula here, right? So like if you're valuing a stock and you put in the earnings growth in the numerator of the discounted cash flow model and the cost of capital in the denominator, if your cash flows are growing at 6% versus 5%, Maybe the, the PE you're willing to pay for that stock is 20 instead of 19. But these are that's a linear concept, right? For Bitcoin, one S-curve, which is up and to the right, versus a steeper S-curve, which is further up and to the right, can be the difference between Bitcoin at 100,000 or Bitcoin at a million. Like The numbers are exponential by definition. And I think that's going to be the challenge and the opportunity for investors to get Bitcoin right in terms of the potential price appreciation. Because even just comparing the internet adoption curve versus the mobile phone adoption curve, again, they're the same curve, but they have slightly different slopes. That can make a big difference. So I'm hoping that we'll get to a point in the Bitcoin super cycle where enough sophisticated investors have these kinds of demand models and that it builds kind of a band around them where if it goes too far above 
investors will short Bitcoin or they'll sell it. If it goes too far below, they will buy it. And that maybe the volatility will start to compress as a result of that. So hopefully as Bitcoin matures and comes of age, we'll see that. But uh, you know, we, we haven't seen it yet. So it's it still needs to prove itself on that front. When I started down this avenue, this is when I suddenly discovered the network effects that ETH has got and how fast that has been. And, you know, I'm not, and again, none of this is about the philosophy of, of the space or anything else. I just looked at the network adoption and went, oh, my God, we thought Bitcoin was big, but this was big. How are you seeing the difference in the ETH versus Bitcoin network adoption models? Yeah, you're exactly right. The ETH network is growing much, much faster than the Bitcoin network. And we all know why, right? It's it's more scalable. It's less decentralized. It's less scarce, of course. So we don't know exactly what the scarcity is. We know what it is right now, but I think investors will always demand a discount from the Ethereum valuation because we won't know in some future fork what will happen you know, to the supply, whereas we do know what will happen uh, to the Bitcoin supply. So you're just trading one against the other, but clearly Ethereum is a faster growing network. And per Metcalf's law, the bigger the network gets, the more exponentially the valuation of that network becomes. And I've used the example of of Apple Computer, where you can see if you look at their annual revenues, the more iPhones and all that stuff that they sell, the valuation goes up you know, exponentially to that until it gets to the point. And then when it gets to the point where the network is so powerful that it has such a large moat around it that even if I invent a far better iPhone tomorrow, I'm never going to be able to penetrate that network because it's too powerful. And I think Ethereum and Bitcoin you know, have, have reached the, the, those thresholds. Um, that doesn't mean there won't be other coins uh, and other networks out there, but I think they have satisfied the, the kind of the test to become big enough to be, A, to be believed and taken seriously, right? I mean, a couple of years ago, a lot of investors said, well, this can get regulated out of existence pretty quickly. I think we've kind of, that ship has sailed, I think. So we've talked about, okay, the macro setup, it looks like it's the right kind of zone for this, for crypto to do well. We've talked about the network adoption curves. The next thing I want to talk to you about, because I think it's fascinating is, and again, I'm not being an ETH maximalist, but I'm fascinated about the staking. Firstly, because obviously it reduces supply. So at the margin, it should mean that it outperforms as a network, given if Bitcoin and ETH had the same amount of increased network demand, let's say they grow up 10% a year, ETH will outperform naturally because we've probably got this limited supply. But what I'm really more interested in, and I think you'll be interested in as well, is I think it's going to set a benchmark rate for yield for the Web3 industry per se. So which we can then monitor risk. We've just gone through a risk blow up because it's not easy for people to understand. You and I have grown up in markets where, oh, well, EM is priced 400 over treasuries and we price junk bonds over treasuries and we do so we have this benchmark of which we can understand risk feels like this might be the big setup and that's a big deal for institutions i know you guys at fidelity are you know you've got eth now as part of the um, product suite it feels that eth yield is going to be a big thing because you make the one asset allocation decision which is i want to get exposure to web3 yeah. maybe you do a 60 40 as you say with bitcoin and eth but ETH now has a yield, which makes it a lot easier, and it's going to create different pricing structures for us to think about. How are you thinking through all of this? I think it's a very big deal, probably very underestimated. People only think of it in the supply terms. I think the yield thing is huge. If we can start valuing Ethereum 
through a cash flow model, like a DCF model, and you have the growth and you have some sort of anchor to that growth in terms of cash flows through the staking, that could be a very big deal in bringing in kind of conventional investors by allowing them to actually value an asset class. Because, you know, until a number of years ago, you know, Warren Buffett would ridicule gold saying it doesn't have a cash flow. Why should I buy it? But no one's going to argue that gold is not an asset class, right? So you can have a a yield-free asset as long as it does something for you, right? And, you know, gold, of course, is money. It's a store of value. It could be a medium of exchange, not that people use it that way. And I think Bitcoin is aspiring to be money as well. I wouldn't really consider Ethereum to necessarily be money, but it's it's certainly an asset class. It's a very growthy asset class. And so once you can start valuing Ethereum, then you can start valuing Bitcoin perhaps easier. I mean, we have the demand curve, we have the supply curve, but if Bitcoin then becomes sort of a benchmark because it actually has a cash flow, then you can do a relative value ban, for instance, of Bitcoin versus Ethereum, and that could become the, the standard bearer then for valuing all of crypto. Uh, so I, I do think that that would be an important milestone. Yeah, so let's see what happens, but there's also a lot will get built on having this benchmark yield, I think. you know, yeah. It actually makes DeFi a lot more understandable for people. What risk you're taking, what's a 20% yield, where does it come from versus ETH, which is in ETH terms as a local currency bond, essentially. It's risk-free as a local currency bond as long as you want to take the currency risk yeah. um, because it's programmed in. And that's, you know, it's an interesting point about the currency risk, because that, of course, is where Bitcoin's volatility comes from, because if it's a commodity currency, you have to convert it into fiat. If the adoption curve gets advanced enough that enough people own Bitcoin or Ethereum and it's used as a medium of exchange, then that presumably would reduce the volatility because everyone would just be inside that ecosystem and you don't have to go to the on and off ramp back into fiat, right? So that's another kind of promise, which I don't know if it will be achieved, but that's another promise for if the Bitcoin network gets large enough, volatility, at least as a payment system, should be reduced because everyone will just stay inside that system. And we're seeing the nascent start of that by so much in the Web3 world being priced in ETH as like the internet currency. And eventually over time, as you say, you know, it's still early in the network adoption. But if goods and services get priced in Bitcoin over time, right now you're not incentivized to sell it because you're still in the network adoption mode. So all you want to do is hold it. The last thing you want to do is buy a coffee with it because it's Bitcoin pizza. It's a stupid thing to do. But eventually... Once the network adoption is mature and it's growing at the rate that money, global money supplies is growing or central bank balance sheets are growing, then, then it kind of works perfectly. Yeah. So final thing, what is your favorite chart that you've put together recently? What's the one that you've gone, wow, that's amazing? Boy, that's like... In the crypto me, space, what's the one you've just gone? That's like making, me, making me, 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 me pick among my children. Um, <laughs> I, I would say it's the valuation chart. So I have a chart that shows Bitcoin's price, which I still think most people think about Bitcoin in price terms, which is normal, right? People think of bonds in nominal yield terms, not in real yield terms. They think about the S&P or the NASDAQ as the price level, not as the PE. But the valuation is ultimately 
what's the most important, right? What for the stock market, what are you willing to pay for each dollar of earnings? It's more important than what is the price of the Dow Jones industrials, right? A 20 PE versus a 15 versus a 25 is the most valuable metric. Um, and for bonds, it's the real yield as opposed to the nominal. And for Bitcoin, you know, I created a very simple kind of valuation ratio, like a PE for Bitcoin, where I just divide the price by the millions of addresses, of non-zero addresses. That may not be the perfect way to do it, but it gives you a decent benchmark to say, okay, the network is growing, so price on its own is, you know, you have to look at it relative to what the fundamentals are, which is the network. And so the price to network ratio, which is what I call it, is back down to 2013 levels. So, you know, if you want to th make the argument that Bitcoin is cheap versus expensive, don't look at price. Uh, I mean, the price is cheap relative to its high, of course. Uh, but if you look at an actual valuation ratio, we're back to where Bitcoin was nine years ago. Uh, and to me, that's that, to me that that's a good aha moment in terms of you know, at 20,000 or 22,000, the network versus nine years ago is vastly bigger than, than it was then. And the price, you know, uh, hasn't kept up with that. So to me, that's one of the things that makes me most encouraged about what lies ahead for Bitcoin. And I think that's a phenomenally important thing for people to understand price to network, because what you're doing is understanding this is a network adoption model. Yeah. So what is the price doing in context of the size of the network? I think that's very, very useful work and it gives us yet another way of understanding these network models that we're all trying to get our heads around because we poo-pooed them for so long with Amazon and other stuff. We didn't get our heads around it. And now we're having to think about the world in a different way. And I think it's a great breakthrough as ever. So, Yurian, listen, fantastic to have a conversation with you as ever. And I'm sure people get a lot out of this. And, you know, I've been saying for a long time and you've been saying for a long time, crypto is macro, macro is crypto. They're all the same thing. They're just different assets within that are affected by the macro in different ways. It's all, all macro all the time, um, even with individual asset classes. So it's always a great pleasure to be on with you, Rob. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we'll talk soon, my friend. What surprised me in this conversation is you and I's view on the economy kind of differ at the moment, this current state but we're both looking for the same thing by using our macro frameworks. And it's a change in the valuation of crypto and a potential for the pivot of the economy. The biggest takeaway I took and everybody should take is we are close to the macro pivot point. Macro matters for crypto. Crypto is in fact macro. And whether it's Urian's new network valuation model or looking at M2 or whether it's looking at bond yields, they're all signaling the same thing, is the future is probably better than the past six months, which is a good thing for all of us to hear. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com.
That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.